You love to hear it. Sizzling in the frying pan, this aroma of the bacon filling the air, and you know you're about to eat something delicious. Bacon is awesome. And yet when it's lunchtime, sometimes you want to have some deep fat fried catfish. Bacon and catfish. You know what they both have in common? They come from animals that wallow in the mud. Sometimes we can wallow in the mud in our lives, and if we're not careful, we too can be consumed. When we look at the life of David, we see that here is a man who at times found himself in the mud, and yet he did not stay there. He did not wallow in the mud. We can look at the life of David and see parallels for our lives today and how we can sometimes allow ourselves to be sucked down and wallow in the mud, or we can turn to God, get up out of the mud, and change our lives. All of us make mistakes. And all of us at times, I suppose, can look at the failures in our lives and we can either stay there or we can get up and we can get out. I want to look at David and his interaction with Bathsheba and his appeal to God for a clean conscience. And look at that story and see the parallels for how it guides us and how we ought to respond to the failures and the mistakes and the sin in our lives. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please return in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that we find David out on a stroll that would change his life. Notice what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. At first we look at the story and we think, well, you know, David made a terrible mistake here. David committed a, a grievous sin here. But I suggest to you that David allowed his passions and his lust to get such a strong hold out of himself, on himself, that he couldn't even think straight. He got sucked into a failure in life. See, when we look at this story, it, it should have been clear to David very quickly, this is something I ought not to do. Now, on the one hand, that's pretty clear to us, right? You don't sleep around. But it should have been even more clear to David. You see, when we look at verse 3, they say, who is this woman? And, and the answer comes back, oh, this is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David was about to step in an extreme mess. Look at chapter 15, verse 12. 
Chapter 15, verse 12 says, And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo, where he was offering, and sac offering sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong for the people, increased continually with Absalom. Now look at chapter 23 and verse 9. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 9. This is the listing of the mighty men of David. It says, first of all, in verse 39, that among those 30 men, or 37 men, as it turns out, was Uriah the Hittite. Look at verse 34. Eliphet, the son of Abishai, the son of Micaiathite, and Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. Now go back to... 1 Samuel chapter 11, or 2 Samuel chapter 11, excuse me. You see in verse 3 when it's told to, say, told to David that the, woman is the son of Bash, is, that the woman is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, they're not just saying this is some woman, this happens to be her family relationship. They're saying this is Bathsheba, the son of your person, the granddaughter rather, of your personal counselor who serves on your court. This is the wife of one of the 37 men that you consider among your elite troops. A daughter of one of those men. These were names that meant something to David. And yet he still chose to take her into his home, into his home. And we know the rest of the story. Verse 6, And David sent to Joab, saying, Send to me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah. And of course Uriah comes, and he doesn't go home. Instead he feels compelled because they're in a state of war to protect David. Now I've heard different preachers at different times make some conclusions. Why was Bathsheba out bathing where she knew she could be seen? Why did Uriah not go home? All of these things contributed to the context and the situation. Well, maybe so. But David knew what he was doing, and yet his, he allowed his passions to take control of his thinking. And now he's stuck. Now he's in a bad spot, and Uriah's not helping him out any. So we know what David does. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter, Place Uriah at the front of the line in the fiercest battle, and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And of course that's what happens. Uriah doesn't know that the letter he's carrying is his own death sentence. But David has to do something to make himself not appear bad in the eyes of the people. So he has Uriah killed. And then as soon as that happens, he takes Bathsheba into his house and he marries her. And, well, you know, nine months later, here comes the baby boy. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. But then in chapter 12, God sends a prophet. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and 
he came to him and said, there were two men, one in the city, one rich, and one poor. And he gives this analogy of this man who has a, a huge flock of sheep, and he could have any of those sheep that he wanted. But instead, he takes advantage of his neighbor and takes that precious sheep out of that man's house, the one sheep that he has, and he slaughters that, and that's what he uses to serve a meal with. And David says, that man needs to be killed. That man needs to be disciplined. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, I'm talking about you. And so David is confronted with his sin. Notice what the text says, beginning in verse 9, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household and I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, that he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. David has to live with the consequences of his sin. Even though God says, David, I'm going to forgive you of your sin, you're still going to have these consequences. Now, it's interesting that David doesn't make an excuse. David doesn't try to rationalize what he's done. As soon as he's confronted with the sin, he acknowledges it and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that is when Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you. But there's still going to be these consequences. And those consequences happen. We read about them in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. But David doesn't wallow in the mud. David doesn't stay there in the mud. Let's see what happens. Beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him. And he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then, then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child is dead, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I, I said, who knows 
The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died, why shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David had already been told what was going to happen. And while the child was still alive, he poured out his heart to God. He fasted, he prayed, he asked for the life of that child. But God still carried out the consequence that he said he, there was going to be because of his sin. But after that happened, David did not stay in the mud, so to speak. David turned to God. David did not stay wallowing in the mud. Look over in Psalm chapter 51. Notice that the prescript, which is probably ancient, though not inspired as the text itself is, the prescript says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That sets the context for us. The actual text of Scripture says, beginning in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David acknowledges his sin. And he doesn't make a justification for it. He doesn't make excuse for it. He simply says, I have sinned. And in fact, he uses hyperbole. In verse 5, I believe, to say, I, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He says, My life is nothing but sin. It's all around me. I can't escape it. I'm wallowing in the mud. I am living a failure. with my sin. And he cries out to God. Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Sometimes we can get so sucked down into the mud because of our failures, because of our mistakes, because of our sin, and we just stay there. And when we do that, we lose our self-esteem. We can become depressed. We can look at the world as if there's no way for us to escape. And we look at the world as if there is no hope. And yet David did not do that. He acknowledges a sin and he cries out to the only person who can cleanse him, the only one who can heal him, and that's to God. Wash me, cleanse me. For verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He acknowledges the fact that his sin is ugly and disgusting and horrible. And he says, Get that away from me. I don't even want to see that anymore. 
Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. As a king of Israel anointed with the Holy Spirit, he says, don't take away your spirit from me. Let me have that restored relationship with you, God. And he cries out to God for that restored relationship. And as a result of that, he says, I will be able to teach others. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my, you, my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. God isn't looking for us to go through motions. He's looking for us to come with him, to him with a contrite heart. He's looking for us to come with him with an appeal, uh, a voice crying out to him for help, acknowledging our sin, and God will cleanse us. And as a result of that, we're able to go about and teach others. We're able to go out and sing the praises of God. Verse 19, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on their altar. As we look at the story of David, we see a man who is caught in sin. In, in the filthiness of sin. And not just a little bit, but a whole lot. I mean, he's, he takes another man's wife. But then to cover that up, he has that person killed. I mean, how many of us can say that we have had an affair and then killed the person that was the rightful spouse of that individual? I dare say none of us have done that. It's hard for us to let that wear on our minds exactly how corrupt and sinful David was. And yet when he's confronted with the sin, he turns to God and cries out to God for forgiveness and cries out to God to cleanse him. And the problem in our lives many times is that we do sins, maybe not like David did, but instead of crying out to God and being cleansed by God, a lot of times we just wallow in the mud. And sometimes we just wallow in self-pity. And sometimes we do that with mistakes and failures that we have in life that maybe are not sin per se. And we just sit there and wallow in the mud. And we let that drag us down and prevent us from doing what we need to be doing. And what we see with David is someone who appeals to God for a clean conscience and owns up to the sin. And acknowledge what we did was wrong and sinful and a mistake. And then don't do it again. To have that broken and contrite heart, that's the key to Psalm 51. Is having that broken and contrite heart that says, you know what, this was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I have destroyed my relationship with God and with others. But I've destroyed my relationship with God. The only one that did that was me. Me. 
but God alone can pull me up out of the mire. And when he does that, I'm going to be able to tell others with joy about God. But so often we just sit in the mire, floundering like a catfish, kicking like a pig, in the filthiness of that mire, wondering why we not, never prosper, letting that just build on our psyche, and that tyranny of shoulds, I should have done this, I should have done this. It doesn't have to be that way. We can call to God, and He'll forgive us. He will cleanse us if we have that contrite and broken heart. That heart that says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to repeat this sin. And that's the way it is with our lives. With the mistakes that we make, the failures in our lives, we can either stay there wallowing or we can get up and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to move on. And sometimes we still have the consequences of that sin. But we still keep going. David had to live with the consequences of his sin. Everything that Nathan the prophet told him was going to happen, happened. As we continue reading 2 Samuel, we know that Absalom, his son, comes back and rebels against his dad because here's David making another mistake, different circumstance, different mistake. Allows Absalom to gain in popularity and power in Israel. Absalom comes, and what does he do? Takes his father's ten concubines that he left to clean house. Does just as Nathan said, in front of everybody. And the sword never leaves David's house. Always battling, always fighting. And that little innocent baby never grows up. Consequences sometimes remain. Even with even when God's forgiveness is there. And we can make a choice whether or not we're going to allow those consequences to hold us down, to keep us wallowing in the mud. Or we can pick ourselves up, appeal to God for a clean conscience. Let that weight of that sin be taken from our minds. Let the weight of that failure be taken from our minds and choose to live differently so that we can rejoice, so that we can joyfully tell others of God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's goodness. As Christians, we need to not let the mud of our lives, the failures of our lives, the mistakes of our lives, the sins of our lives keep us wallowing in that mud. Instead, we need to look at God's grace and God's forgiveness and let that grace, that love, that joy emanate from us so that others also want to become Christians. Maybe you're here this morning and there's been mistakes in your life. There's been failures in your life. You can let go of those. You don't have to let those continue weighing on your shoulder and on your mind. Let go of those. Let God's grace cleanse you. Let God's love set you free so that you too can proclaim the joy of being God's son or God's daughter.
If that's what you need to do this morning, I want you to come. Just together we stand and sing.